0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana and I'm joined once again by my good friend, Mike Scott. How are you today, sir?
1: I am well, sir. Thank you very much. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, you know, you know, and I don't want to date this conversation for anyone that might be listening a year or two down the road, but still in the midst of the self-isolation, I'm now now on day number seven. I trust everything is going well with you.
1: Yep, pretty much the exact same boat.
0: This is going to be part two of our series, No Fate, a look at the Terminator franchise. The first episode that we did was on, of course, the 1984 seminal classic, The Terminator, which you and I unanimously agreed was an amazing film and one that we highly recommend it. This episode, we're going to be talking about 1991's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And before we get into the film itself, Mike, the first question I have is, tell me about when this movie came on your radar and what was your anticipation level for the film?
1: So it came on my radar, you know, basically as soon as they announced it. There was that fantastic teaser trailer of the, the Terminator basically being built and uh, the T-800 basically being built. And so, you know, and I had already loved as, as people who listened to the last episode know, you know, I saw Terminator opening weekend in the theater and, and had loved that movie for years. I It was one of the very first VHS uh, tapes I ever bought bought or my family ever bought from Columbia House back in the day, if anybody remembers that. So I, my anticipation was high, but I will also uh, admit that my anticipation was a little muted just because I, as much as I could have when I was, you know, that age, I think I would have been uh, 14 or so when this came out. I was a little worried that they weren't going to be able to pull it off because I didn't think Terminator was a movie that needed a sequel. There was a lot of anticipation, but there was also a little bit of hesitancy. Um, How about you?
0: Well, I, I see it came out in August of 91 or July of 91. I think it came on my radar probably february or march of that year much like you when the trailers first started to debut um and i remember this was back in a time when you know on a random saturday morning around noon or so you you could catch a 30 minute making of series they would do that for a lot of movies do you remember those
1: oh yeah they were usually on hbo or uh, hbo did a ton of them but yeah uh there were all these shows that you just get like – they and they were basically like electronic press kits, right? They were pretty yeah. much advertisements for the movie, but they were always interesting because you did at least get to see some of the making of stuff.
0: That being said, I – it's been 29 years since that movie came out. And this morning when I was sitting outside with my coffee, kind of just – watching highlights of the film on my phone. I I was curious about the marketing campaign because I was a little too young to remember. I want to say I was 13 when the movie came out. They marketed this film as... Arnold being the good guy. I had to double check because I wanted to, I was wondering, and we'll get to the, the whole scene in the mall with the sort of the, the big reveal when he tells Connor to get down. But I went back and watched the first official trailer for this and they didn't try to hide the fact that Arnold was the good guy this time around. And I'm curious your thoughts on the decision on that marketing side of things.
1: Well, given the box office, it obviously didn't hurt it. <laughs> um, it was actually funny. It kind of, it was... That twist was spoiled for me even before the marketing because I used to get comic book readers will will know uh, of Previews Magazine. Previews Magazine is a, a magazine that's in comic shops that you get that is basically the catalog of all the comics and toys and stuff that your comic book shop can order. And you get it about four or five months out before the stuff is going to hit the store so you can pre-order anything. And they had a whole list of terminator 2 toys because back in the 90s we could have toys from r-rated movies and uh and it pretty much revealed that you know the t-1000 was going to be the new villain and that that arnie was going to be the good guy so i kind of knew that going out um i'm not a spoiler guy um so for me it, it didn't bother me at all it kind of increased the anticipation because you know where 1984's Terminator was really At the start of his career this is at the Height of Arnold's powers Right this is when he is uh, If not the biggest One of the biggest movie Stars in the entire world so You know you wanted to see Arnie Kick all sorts of ass you wanted to see Him kind of be in that heroic Role I think so it uh, To me I thought it was it was Fine I I don't think People would have been that surprised um, You know The twist isn't really that big of a twist because his whole behavior and demeanor in the first half of the movie is still so much more uh, restrained than it is in in Terminator that you kind of already have a sense of it to begin with.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that just sort of begs the question. I think this is a topic that we might explore with each subsequent film. And that is, if you could sort of comment a little bit more or expand a little bit more on Arnie's career from 84 to 91, because you mentioned And I'll agree that he was one of, if not the biggest movie star or box office draw in the world. And that's a really interesting thing to look at because the majority of those movies he made were hard R-rated films. So, what kind of a fan of Arnold were you from 84 to 91?
1: Huge. Um, I was always a bit more of a Stallone guy in the great Stallone-Schwarzenegger battle, but I was still a huge Arnold fan. After Terminator, we got Commando, Raw Deal, the the back to back punch of Predator and Running Man, both in 1987. What a hell of a year for him in 1987. You know, and then just, just before Terminator 2, we got uh two more of his biggest hits. We got Total Recall and Kindergarten Cop. And it is a bit interesting because, like you said, Dana, a lot of those were big, you know, bloody hard R action movies. But he'd also done twins and kindergarten cop. So he was also transitioning a little bit to that kind of more family-friendly Schwarzenegger. And so Terminator 2 really does kind of play into that because it really does bridge the gap between those two Arnold Schwarzeneggers, right? Because we've got, it's still an R-rated movie, big action movie, but, you know, and spoilers, obviously, folks, if you haven't seen the movie yet, we're going to spoil the hell out of it. We get, you know, John telling him he can't kill anybody. So it really does sort of kind of try and straddle the line between those family friendly fans and the people like me who, you know, liked him because of Predator or Commando or, or those movies.
0: And I'll ask the same question of Cameron post Terminator uh, and uh, post Terminator up to Terminator 2 he released two films in that time period 1986's Aliens and then 1989's The Abyss uh, not much we can really much not much more we need to say about Aliens that hasn't already been said but I'll ask you, you know, just to refresh the listeners who aren't sure or, or haven't listened to the other episode your thoughts on Aliens and then your quick thoughts on The Abyss.
1: Aliens, there's nothing more to say I think it's a perfect movie. The only Cameron movie that I like more than Aliens is terminator uh so that tells you how much i love that movie you know the abyss to be honest with you i haven't seen the abyss in probably 25 years um and it was not one of my favorites what i will say is i do think again it it starts to kind of signal that transition to a bit more and when i say family friendly folks we're still talking about r-rated movies here but again reminder that in the 90s we got toys of r-rated movies so like r-rated movies could still be family friendly in a weird sort of way you know the abyss was a bit of that transition for Cameron because it's it's a much less hard-edged movie you know Terminator is pretty much, as we talked about, a straight-up horror movie. Aliens is basically horror action, but there is as much horror as there is action in it. Uh, The Abyss is true, like, sort of sci-fi. There's a little bit of action, a little bit of, you know, high-intensity stuff, but for the most part, it's much more interested in kind of science and exploration. Um, And again, it softens a little bit of those edges that we had uh, in the early movies, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I just... I remember not loving it, but I certainly, if it ever got released on Blu-ray, would be happy to re-watch it and revisit sure, it.
0: Sure, sure. And The Abyss is also quite notable for Cameron's first real use of CGI effects, one that's really, I think, more of an experiment in The Abyss and one that he sort of brings to the world with Terminator 2. Would you agree on that?
1: Absolutely. I, yeah. Uh, Yeah, we we start to first see that morphing effect that's going to become, you know, so important to Terminator 2. The the aliens in Abyss are, are the sort of shimmery, morphe-type things that we see later with the T-1000. But you're right, it's definitely an experiment. It doesn't quite ever work as well as I think Cameron wants it to. And and that's a little bit a part of my problem with the Abyss 2, is, is it's really where we start to also get the beginning of James Cameron that's more interested in tech than he is in people. Because I don't think the characters, as best I remember, caveat, asterisks, uh, I don't think the characters in The Abyss are some of his best characters necessarily. It was obvious that he really was just much more interested in that morphing technology that uh, that he created, which I think he uses to much better effect here in Terminator yeah. 2.
0: So, I'm going to ask you one question and then we'll, we'll get into the movie. So, it's a question, but I want you to kind of hold your answer. I'll, it'll make sense when I ask the question. Take me through when you saw Terminator 2 and your immediate reaction after you left the theater and then I'll follow up with my scenario as well.
1: Uh, I saw it opening weekend. I was actually with a friend at his grandparents house in California. We kind of took a little summer vacation and uh, we went and saw it opening. I don't think we saw it Friday. I I feel like it was maybe we saw it Saturday, but it was definitely opening weekend. I I was a little bit, uh... I don't want to say that it didn't Impress me. I just I didn't have that same feeling that I had when I saw Terminator. Uh, one thing I do want to add, uh, when you asked that anticipation question, I was also and still am a big Guns N' Roses fan. So I had been listening to "You Could Be Mine" nonstop, basically in the weeks leading up to the movie. So um, that that was much uh, part of my anticipation as well.
0: Okay, for me, it was one of those ones where I was 13 at the time. My mom was. Steadfast against my brother and I ever watching R-rated films. So we, you know, we had kind of a we say we used to have the underground R-rated market in our neighborhood because we knew the the kids whose parents didn't care. So that's how we would get to see a lot of the movies. That's how I got my might say my Schwarzenegger fix or my Elm Street fix was always at my friend Jason's house who lived a couple houses down. I wanted to see this movie incredibly bad. It was probably at the time the most anticipated movie I ever wanted to see and it was out for a few weeks before I got an opportunity to see it. And I remember like the kids at my YMCA YMCA summer camp and we gather around them. They were the ones that actually got to see the movie and I would listen intently until they got into spoilers and I would walk away. And like it was the middle of the summer and I remember one random Wednesday or Thursday, the movie had been out for about three weeks. My dad came home early from work and mom was working and he just ushered my, Brother and I into the car and drove us to the the local multiplex and took my brother and I to see Terminator Two and it was uh, again it was the first R rated film that my dad ever took me to see. He made my brother and I promise not to say anything to my mom <laughs> and I think we kept that promise for about three weeks maybe <laughs> and then That's some... good. That's, yeah. I'm impressed. It held out that long. That's good. So th- there was a lot of firsts for me on that one. Like this was the first Arnold movie I saw in the theater. This is the first R rated film I saw in the theater. And I got to tell you, at 13 years old, very impressionable. So, the movie meant everything to me. It really, when I watched the movie today, I could, I literally watched it today, like the nostalgia factor really plays heavily into me. And I, and I realized that I, and I, I'll openly admit that I have probably issues separating myself from the nostalgic factor of this film. And so, I remember, I remember leaving the theater, leave, uh, leaving the theater, loving it, And it didn't come out on home video. I think it was like sometime in December. And that was when I got an opportunity to see it for a second time. And I've subsequently seen it probably next to Jaws. I've probably seen the film more than any other film out there. And uh, look, at 13 years old, I absolutely love the film.
1: And look, that's, uh, I mean, you know, for anybody that listened to the last episode, everything you basically just said about Terminator 2 was kind of how I feel about Terminator, right? I told the story of going to see it with my pops, and it's a it's a story that my dad and I still talk about. You know, that movie was an important part of, of our relationship. There's nothing wrong with nostalgia, with movies being wrapped up in nostalgia. I mean, there, there can be, obviously, because, uh, like, nostalgic toxicity is a thing but having those memories are why we go to movies in the first place they're the reason we watch movies we want to have those memories so I, that's that's a great that's a great story man I think that's fantastic
0: I have owned this movie on every format that it's come out on and we're gonna get into the discussion because the film I watched today was in fact the director's cut which does add a little bit extra which we'll talk about so let's let's sort of just jump into the movie so right off the bat oh before we do that, I want to point out that I think the budget for the first term mayor was somewhere in that six to nine million dollar range.
1: Six, I've actually got the numbers up okay. six point four million. Okay, this one was a hundred and two million. Yes, so this is a uh,
0: this is an example of what James Cameron can do with what was at the time unlimited funds. Pretty much. This is an example of what he can do when he is not constricted by budget constraints. I think that shows right from the very opening. We get uh, some, some quick shots of Los Angeles, modern day Los Angeles. It quickly fades to the post-apocalyptic, you know, landscape at night. It's a little eerie because it is, you know, it's a, a children's playground and there's skulls. And then you get this voiceover from Sarah Connor. And the first thing I want to sort of mention to you was when I was listening today, there's a real wariness in her voice. I mean, she's not the real soft-spoken Sarah Connor that she was in the first Terminator. This is a, a woman I feel that's been really hardened by the events that have transpired over the past 10 years. This movie takes place 10 years after the events of the first one. What did you think about sort of just the opening monologue?
1: I I think it, it hits right in the gut. I mean, it, it, I think it's an absolutely perfect sort of opening. You know, the the original Terminator gives us that text, uh, that, that text card that basically tells us about the war against the machines. But to have Sarah, who, again, we remember as this, uh, at least at the start of, of the first Terminator, this almost sort of fragile person that, that we want Kyle Reese to protect. To hear very much the change in tone in her voice, I think, conveys a lot. It's it's again, it's that way that Cameron can be when he's on his game. Such a masterful visual storyteller.
0: Yeah. And then we immediately get this just again, I remember seeing that the first time that I almost want to say it was almost a jump scare for me when you just see the the foot of the Terminator just come down and crush the skull and then the camera pans up. And what we get here, and again, I juxtapose this with the opening of the original Terminator is an example of what Cameron can do when he's not uh, limited by the budget. Because this opening sequence, again, we talked about In the first one about Cameron always wanting, you know, always leaving us wanting more. Like he just gives us enough. And this is another example of just giving us enough of what the battle against the machines is like in 2029.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is the same thing that he did so well in in the first one and and what I think some of the later movies, particularly Salvation, which I don't want to, you know, spoil my thoughts on that, but what they do wrong. This is ju- it's just seasoning. It's just a little bit of spice there to give you an idea of this nightmare world so that we are invested in this movie in Sarah and John trying to prevent this nightmare world from coming about trying to you know do everything they can because no matter and and that'll come up a bit when we I don't want to jump too far ahead but when we see what Sarah is willing to do when it comes to Dyson at least initially you know we get it because no matter what actions she's willing to take the alternative is that much more horrific
0: yeah and then we get a we get a a, a glimpse of future john connor who is, you know, he's got scars on his face. And you can also tell that this man has been through the, he's been through the ringer in this situation. I mean, and I just, I just think this is great. I love how you said it's just the seasoning. That's a perfect way to describe this. And then, you know, we get a little bit more exposition because, and I wanted to bring this up sooner than later in the episode. You mentioned that the first Terminator is a very self-contained story, that it has a beginning, middle, and end. And that is it. So I'm curious your thoughts about how, I don't want to say they shoehorn in, but the decision to sort of have the voiceover where she says the machine sent two Terminators back in time. What did you think about that uh, upon initial viewing?
1: Well, so upon initial viewing, I it probably didn't even phase me. Uh, I will say upon my most recent rewatch, which was like a week ago. Again, I don't want to get too far ahead, but part of the thing you're you know, everybody's going to notice about me throughout this entire series is I don't think Terminator needs any sequels, period. I think it is a perfect movie by itself. That being said, if you're going to do something inherently ridiculous, like give a perfect movie a sequel, I admire the efficiency of just a couple of lines of voiceover, get it out of the way, lampshade it, let us know and move on. So, to me, I actually think this is pretty great. Rather than contorting themselves, as some of the later movies do, into pretzels to try and justify (laughs) why we're getting another sequel. It's basically Cameron just saying, you know you want another one of these. (laughs) Yes. I'm gonna give it to you. Let's not, like, waste a bunch of fucking time trying to figure out the whys and wherefores. Let's just get to it. So I actually kind of admire it for that, because, like, let's just do it. Let's We want a Terminator sequel. Let's just get to it. So I have no problem with it.
0: Okay. And then we get, uh, and I mentioned on the last episode that uh, Brad Fidel does the music, and he uses the same theme, but it's so much more enhanced. And just this opening title cards with the everything's on fire and the music is just so melodic. It's awesome. And I have to ask, you know, what do you think about the score, the the musical score for this film?
1: So, I have a bit more affinity for the very synth wavy sound of uh, the original, just because I am a child of the 80s. I grew up with that kind of sound. So, I like the, the sound of Brad Fidel with just a keyboard, but there's no question this is a sweeping, epic absolutely phenomenal score. The way he's reworked that. I mean, you you cut in the Terminator theme at the start of the last episode and when I was re-listening to it. I just still get chills every time I hear that theme. Every time I hear it, I get chills. Uh, and so this is, this is a fantastic score. I actually kind of... I haven't done any research on it. I'm just curious as to why we never got more film scores from him because... Uh, based on the ones that he did do he's absolutely fantastic so i I, i'm not sure why he's not uh you know a hans zimmer caliber film composer but uh yeah Yeah. the score has been phenomenal.
0: And he did do the score for True Lies, so he did work with Cameron again in the next film, although uh it was I believe it was James Horner that did the score for Titanic. I'd have to double check that, but I think that's correct.
1: That is correct.
0: So so yeah, he did work with him at least one more time. And I you know, I should have done a little more research as far as what scores Fidel did after that, after True Lies. This is a two-hour and thirty-minute-long movie, so we're we're not going to cover every aspect of the film, but we're going to get sort of like what like what I would call like sort of the bullet points of the movie. The, and we have to start with the introduction of the two Terminators, which again, I I'm just going to keep reiterating, like Cameron just. Goes for it with the special effects, and I just love like the little nuances of Arnold's introduction, and when the the sphere opens up, and then the back of the big rig has got a perfectly carved out indention from where the sphere was. I it's, mm-hmm. it's just incredible.
1: Absolutely, and uh, and. And the thing is, is they still have a nice, he's still using a bunch of practical effects in this. And so a lot of it is still very practical. We're just getting that new CGI technology that he's using to, again, kind of spice things up. It makes one of the things that I really like is when we start seeing the T-1000 do its thing, it makes it feel as legitimately alien Or monstrous as it should, right? Because when everything's CGI, the CGI all just blends together. But when everything's practical and you have one character that's CGI like this, that's molding and melting and moving through stuff like that, it makes it feel like the alien type of monster that it should. So I think this is really even... Three decades later, such a fantastic use of, of that CGI and those special effects.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then we get uh, we get the Terminator makes his way to the biker bar, which this is, you know, I really tried to watch this movie from a different angle when I was watching it the last time. And Cameron really does try to go for a little bit of humor in this scene. You mentioned the introduction of the Terminator in the first film when he goes up against, you know, the punks that are at the observatory and he's just brutal. It rips one guy's heart out. He doesn't do that in this scene. This is a little bit different. It's a little bit more subtle, a little more subdued Terminator. And it's something you mentioned that earlier in the episode that the first half of the film, he's he's a little he's a little subdued. And that's the best way for me to describe it. Going through this entire scene when I was watching it, the cringe moment for me came... Uh, after he gets the biker to give him his keys and then we get George Thurgood's Bad to the Bone start playing. It didn't work for me this time.
1: No, it's, it's, it's cringe. It's bad. And, and that to me, that's part of the reason, though, why I think they didn't bother to hide necessarily that he was the good guy. Because, you know, that scene in 1984 in Terminator where he tears the guy's heart out, he's Jason. I mean, that's a Jason move, right? Like digging your hand in some guy's chest and pulling his heart out. That is a Jason Voorhees move. He's a monster. You cannot take him seriously as a villain if he's stepping out to bad to the bone. So it immediately tells us that there's something else going on here. But I don't think it tells us in a good way. I think the fight in the bar does because he doesn't kill anybody, right? He jacks some people up, but we, we notice that he doesn't actually kill anybody the way the terminator in 1984 would have but coming out to bad to the bone and i actually am a pretty big george Thorogood fan but ugh, that just is a clunker for me and that was a clunker for me at the time uh i remember seeing it it, it was one of those where i was just like really cameron and comedy don't necessarily go hand in hand um <laughs> And and this is a perfect example of why. Uh,
0: then we get the introduction of the T-1000. Now, this is a particularly interesting aspect of the film because the T-800, Arnold, he's a monster of a guy. Robert Patrick plays the T-1000 and he's a pretty average looking guy.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: The first time you sort of see him on screen, you're almost like, well, he's not very intimidating looking, but you know, we'll get to that.
1: It's actually really interesting because we talked about in the first one how the the T-800s are the first, they're infiltrators, right? And they're the first ones that could pass as human. But Cameron really liked Schwarzenegger's accent because it still made him sound sort of robotic, like they hadn't quite gotten it. Correct, and it makes sense, right? Because if you're going to create an infiltrator, uh, they're not going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. That motherfucker's going to stand out <laughs> anywhere he goes, right? They're going to look like Robert Patrick, and so it really does elevate and, and tell us that they have now, the machines have now perfected the true infiltration Terminator, the Terminator that can be anyone at any time any place and you will never see them coming. So if you think about it, you know, and and tie it into the the first one, it's the fact that he is so mundane looking uh, I apologize to Robert Patrick for calling him mundane looking um, is actually really horrifying. It's really terrifying. Uh, and I think that's one of the things the movie does really well.
0: When the T-1000 takes on the persona of the LAPD officer, he gets into the car, gets into the little search computer, puts in John's name, and then we are introduced to a 10-year-old John Connor, who is living with some step-parents. Shout out to Jeanette Goldstein, playing the mom, playing the step he- stepmom. yeah.
1: And the always delightful Xander Berkeley, who's never not uh, a welcome presence in in any movie or TV show that he shows up in.
0: Absolutely. We see John out in the garage with his uh, his little Honda XR motor, a uh, dirt bike. He's got his friend with the mullet. That's, all I, that's how I always describe him, his friend with the mullet. And again, first use of the You Could Be Mine song playing. Uh, this scene basically establishes that John's a bit of a troublemaker. And does not have any respect for the uh, step parents that, or foster parents, excuse me, that he's living with.
1: Yep, very quickly gives us a a setup that, in my opinion, is it's good shorthand, which Cameron's very good at, but it's also kind of cliched, right? The troublemaking foster kid and the absentee foster parents is is a bit of a, a bit of a cliche, but nonetheless, it does establish the characters that we need to be aware of and the characters that we need to know, and it sets up who John is.
0: When we get the introduction of Sarah Connor this must have just like people's heads must have exploded when you look at the difference between her from the first film to the second film. she One, she looks fantastic. I mean, clearly, from what I understand, like she worked out for a very long time to get into the shape that she's in. But she's in the Pescadero Mental Hospital. Dr. Soberman is still her doctor. We talked about how, you know, we sort of joked about how he wanted to make a career out of Kyle from the first film. And he's basically making a career out of Sarah in this film. Uh, One really interesting thing about that is we get a little bit more exposition in case people, and I, I thought about this today, Like you got Dr. Soberman walking down the hall with what appears to sort of maybe be the interns and he's explaining who Sarah is and why she is the way she is and and basically goes over some of the plot points from the first Terminator. It's kind of like Cameron's way of saying, well, if you haven't seen the first Terminator, Here's a little bit more exposition for you to understand.
1: You know, and this is this was at a time, I mean, we, we did have VHS, but we kind of talked about it. the Terminator made a lot of money relative to its budget, but it still wasn't, you know, a huge hit. So there was a very high likelihood that a lot of people that were seeing this movie might not have actually seen the Terminator. And so you do have to throw in a bit of backstory to get everybody up to speed. And again, he does it very efficiently, very cleanly. I think much like the hand-waving away of how we've got a second Terminator coming back, it's a very efficient way of just saying, hey, I know what you want to get to. Just let, we'll get there. Just let me get this out of the way really quick.
0: And there's a great – her first line in the film is fantastic when Dr. Soberman says, good morning, Sarah. How are you? And he just she just turns around and says, good morning, Dr. Soberman. How's the knee? It's perfect.
1: Yeah, no. It, it, we don't – I don't know that Linda Hamilton gets necessarily the credit. I mean, she does. Everybody loves her in this movie. But she really is a very modern character uh, for – Somebody that, you know, in a, for a movie that was made in 1991, she could have easily been dropped into a movie that came out last year. You know, you could drop her into Black Widow or Captain Marvel and and she would fit in perfectly. I, what she does in this movie, not just that she, you know, physically has changed uh who she is, but her her performance, her character, uh, everything is just absolutely fantastic in this movie.
0: Yes, I agree. Uh, we get we get back to the T one thousand is now at John Connor's house. and it really speaks to something you just said about the like the perfect infiltrator because when he knocks on the door and talks to the 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 foster dad, you know, he's very polite. He's acting like a police officer. And I, again, I thought that was really interesting, but we also get another little drip of, you know, the, the foster father, foster dad says, you know, there was another guy here, a big guy on a bike. And so, you know that the Arnold character, the T-800, he has all the files on John. He knows exactly where John lives and he's got all the information. But I thought that was interesting because we already, Cameron has created sort of the, the counting down clock. You now know that both of these Terminators are currently looking for John.
1: Absolutely. And it's just a matter of time and, and it creates an inherent tension because even though we we do know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, we're not necessarily 100% sure. Kind of just like he did, he's trying to replicate that same thing. Thing that he did in Terminator, where we're pretty sure that the Terminator's bad, but Kyle Reese is just weird enough that he might be the bad guy, you know? And, and certainly from Sarah's standpoint, she doesn't know which one is good or bad. He's trying to kind of replicate that. I don't think it works quite as effectively, but it still is working, because we, we are getting this inherent tension. Which one of these guys is going to find John first? Um, and that's really what sets up sort of our tension here for the first part of the movie.
0: Let's talk about the character of John Connor just for a moment. Edward Furlong, he was basically spotted at a mall by the casting director and they just kind of rushed him into the film. And I'll ask you about a lot of the actors in the film, but what did you think about his overall performance in the movie?
1: Uh, I am going to upset a lot of people, Dana. (laughs) And again, I want everybody to know, you know, you've hopefully listened to me enough to know I'm not a hot take guy. I don't throw out opinions just to be like, ooh, look at me, I'm so daring. I really, really can't stand him in this movie. Um, I, I think he's one of the weakest parts of the movie. And part of that might, you know how you said you can't separate the nostalgia uh, from I can't separate who Edward Furlongs become right. uh, necessarily from this performance. I even when I first saw it, I didn't think he was he was very good. I, I had a very hard time buying that this kid would turn into the savior of humanity, and, and that's. I don't. I want to get into it a little later after we get through the movie, but this is where I, I said it on the live stream we did uh, a while ago. Um, I think the Terminator movies have a John Connor problem, and, and I think this is where it first starts. And I don't think any one of the movies has ever solved that problem, which is the Terminator so builds up how amazing John Connor is that really no actor is going to be able to fill that role. And they might have been better off staying away from John as a character completely. Um, And I I think that applies to this movie. One of the biggest problems I have with the movie is is Edward Furlong. Sorry, I know that's going to upset some people. No, no. Or at least not upset them, but I'm sure they're going to disagree with me on that.
0: Look, when I was watching it today, I can I can see flashes of what you're talking about. Again, I really tried to watch this movie objectively for the first time. And uh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, he was his very first, you know, it was his very first movie and you could tell that he hadn't, you know, had a lot of acting under his belt. That being said, yeah, it's an interesting character for sure. Back to the movie, we see, speaking of John Connor, we see him with a, he's hacking into an ATM, which is sort of a, kind of a foreshadowing, something he'll do later on in the movie, but he's able to get $300 out and him and his buddy are uh, are off to the mall to spend a little bit of money.
1: Chekhov's ATM hacking.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, again, this is really great though, because there's a scene here where they've run away from the ATM and his friend's helping him put some stuff away and he pulls out a picture of Sarah and it's the one that was taken from the 1984 film. And this is where we get it. a little bit more exposition where John basically explains that, you know, she's In his opinion, batshit crazy. You know, she tried to blow up a computer factory. She got shot. She got arrested. And we get back to a scene where Sarah is watching a video of her describing the nuclear fire that she's been warning everybody about and has basically a freak out. And, you know, Dr. Soberman tries to convince her that none of this is real. And she ends up having to be sedated. And she's talking to Dr. Soberman afterwards saying that she's much better now. And she's trying to convince him to put her into minimum security so she can have visitors and see her son. And he's having none of it.
1: You know, it's interesting. He was a bit of a douche in the first one. He really goes full douchebag in this one. He's, he's like, I get it. It's hard to, to buy what Sarah is saying, but he's also just such a smug little shit about uh, (laughs) everything. Like He gets to see uh, that she's not crazy later on, but you're just waiting for that to come. You're waiting for him to kind of get uh, get his uh, as he's coming up on this one.
0: What I always thought was interesting about this particular scene where she says that, you know, I have been doing better and he's saying, yes, your attitude's been much improved, but when we're first introduced to the two of them, she stabbed him in the kneecap the other day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always thought that was like, she was really fishing yeah. to try to get out of there. So
1: We also get our first introduction right around this time to Miles Dyson and the chip that was recovered from the original Terminator, the original T-800 uh, in 1980 84. We see him at Cyberdyne um, and we get a shot of him putting the chip away as well as the arm of the original T-800. I only bring that up. There's not much to say about it, but it is an important thing for for where the movie's going to go. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It introduces us to, you know, the fact that you may have thought that the Terminator was destroyed from the first one and that's one and done. But you realize now that there is research companies, there is, you know, you know, Software companies that are, are reverse engineering everything that they've found. And it's, it's pretty interesting. It's actually, I give Cameron a lot of credit because I think that's a really nice hook that he put in this film. It's like, Oh, okay. So this, and this is where my eyes are going to get crossed. If I start to talk about this, it takes the Terminator going back to 84 to create Skynet. And we'll talk about that in a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, but it does. He does tie it in nicely because if people remember, the factory at the end of Terminator was a Cyberdyne factory. So it it it, it really ties it even in more that the company that creates Skynet creates Skynet because the Terminator was destroyed at that company's factory. <laughs> and yeah, we'll talk about that more. But uh, there we go. Would that be
0: defined <laughs> as a time travel paradox?
1: I think so. I, I I think it's definitely, you know, and we can talk about the time travel when we get to the end here, but I think it's absolutely a paradox. It's one of the things that the bothers me about this movie, although I will fully admit that it bothered me less this go round. I watched this movie twice before we, we recorded today, and it bothered me a lot less this go round than it has at any point ever in my life. So, I guess that's a good
0: thing. Okay. All right. We get John at the mall. We also see both Terminators at the mall. And this is, again, ratcheting up the tension. Who's going to find him first? Great scene where they're in the arcade. John, he's first playing missile, missile command, and then he's playing afterburner. The T 1000's in the arcade. He's got a picture of him. He gets ratted out by another kid in the arcade, and his friend really heroically tries to tell him, get out of here, get out of here, and, you know, just gets knocked right off the screen, which I thought was hilarious. And this, this scene, like, I've seen this movie a hundred times. That's a figure of speech, but I've seen it a number of times. And that scene where he's trying to start his bike, and, you know, you know, the T1000's coming and the tension there is just incredible. And then we, of course, we get the first accent action set piece of the movie, which I checked the time is at about the 32 minute mark. So there's actually a lot that goes on before we get to the big action set piece.
1: Yeah, it, it really kind of caps the end of the first act, sort of. I mean, that's sort of what we've got here is this is the the big capper of the first act. And so I appreciate that Cameron takes his time a little bit to, to set this world up. It certainly doesn't feel slow. Um, I mean, the, the movie gets us to that 32-minute mark fairly efficiently. Um, and we get what I think is probably the standout for me, the standout action sequence of the movie. I mean, this chase is absolutely a, you know, it is a car chase to, uh, to end all car chases as far as how it goes and, and how it works and, and the way Cameron puts it all together.
0: And I love how it kind of just keeps topping itself. You know, at first, you know, he gets out of the uh, parking garage and he's, he's being, you know, Robert Patrick's in the big giant that looks like a, a semi tow truck type of vehicle. And you think he's gotten away and he gets down into what I guess they call it the LA River, the canal system they've got there. And you think he gets away and then it's, I mean, incredible the way they, and that was a practical shot they did of that truck coming off of the bridge. And it's just, it's an incredible scene. And it's, like I said, that, that whole chasing just keeps topping itself. And I just, I love it. It's, it's spectacular.
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I think it it owns 100%. It just absolutely owns. Um, there's nothing I can say bad about. About this this action scene,
0: and then by this point, now the Arnold has got John. They're to riding together on the bike. He tells him to pull the bike over. It's time for a lot more exposition, where he explains why he's there, what his mission is, and this is you know this is good. I mean, this is things things kind of slow down for a little bit here, and we get what, what something important happens in the mall. Let me backtrack. When the two Terminators are fighting each other, which again. Maybe we come back to that just for a moment. It's incredible and they're just sort of mono e mano pushing each other like through the, you know, the cinder block walls and then through the little dis- dis- store and he gets thrown out the window and there's a guy with a camera taking pictures. Like that whole scene's incredible as well. Just watching it, it the is. two of them go at it.
1: I like it. It's a lot of fun to watch. One of the things that I think separates this movie from the first one for me though is I liked how – Painfully human Kyle Reese Was how just painfully Fragile and human he was There's no way he could do that with The Terminator right he'd have been a Splash of goo on the wall if He'd even tried and so For this one it's like yes that kicks ass But there's still a little bit of part of me That's like ah but I, I want That human component to it That's again that's just me that's one Of my weird random complaints about This I, I think a lot of my complaints about this movie could be summed up with there's no Kyle Reese because I just love Kyle so much as a character. But uh, that being said, as a pure action scene and as a, we've been waiting, you know, seven years since the original to watch two Terminators punch each other, man, he delivers. There's no question about that. He delivers on the Terminator punch in action. It's kind of like, you know, how I felt when I saw Pacific Rim and I just wanted to see a live action giant robot Punch a monster. This was the same way, right? It yeah. Just it was what you wanted out of it.
0: I'm just going to kind of talk about a few bullet points so we get to the the, the scene where Sarah escapes from the hospital. Uh, in between the time of the chase in the canal into the hospital escape scene, John basically is ex- it's explained to him, you know, what's going on. We as the audience are learning exactly what's going on. We're learning about who the T1000 is, what it's capable of. There's a great scene where John calls his foster parents. Todd and Janelle, Janelle, who earlier was just so like John, clean your room. This is ridiculous. She's on the phone like, when are you coming home, sweetie? I'm making dinner, and and he says hey, something's wrong. She's never this nice. And I just I just chuckled when that part happened, and then the Terminator takes the phone, and you know he tricks the T1000 into giving up the fact that the foster parents are dead, and there's that great scene where Todd is saying, you know, telling the dog to shut the fuck up, and you don't know what's happening, but you just hear the sound and you, cause you see Janelle sort of switch the phone from one side to the other. And just the imagery of seeing that giant metal blade going right through Todd was incredible.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great Shot
0: And it it, it goes back to what we talked about in the first one where dogs can, you know, dogs are know when there's a Terminator, even when it's a T-1000 because the dog Max is just going crazy.
1: And and it's a nice touch because they don't, they don't really dwell on it. But again, it's a nice touch for people that actually had seen the first one to see, oh, right, we we know something's up already.
0: We get to a scene where John is basically explaining to the Terminator about what he's been doing. He talks about how his mom has been kind of shacking up with whoever could teach him how to be the great military leader and all the different places they were at. And he says, you know, look, we got to get her out. Terminator say, nope, not going to happen. They start into an argument. This is where John finds out that the Terminator has to follow his orders, which I thought was really interesting.
1: Uh, it, it's a nice touch. Um, I mean, I guess it does... It is essential because it does do a good job of explaining why this Terminator is going to act differently than the T-800 that we saw in 1984. Um, So, it's a nice touch.
0: Yeah, it's a nice touch. So, he orders him to help rescue his mom. And there's a great scene where, you know, I don't want to get into the whole thing. Well, it's been forever talking about this movie. I just want to get to the part where they're pulling up to the hospital. They're going to rescue Sarah. John makes the Terminator swear that he will not kill anyone. Which, to be fair, he didn't kill anyone prior to that either. Correct. So, But
1: he tried. There was the scene where he was going to shoot the punks that John called over because John's a little shit. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, yeah, you're right. He uh, he hadn't killed anybody up to that point. And that, but let's go back
0: to that part just for a moment because that bothered me. He's screaming for help. These two guys run over like, hey, man, you need some help? And he's just like, get lost, you know? And it's like- that wasn't very nice. I mean, these guys came to see if you were all right. You know, the, the proper thing to say would have been, I'm good, guys. Sorry. Complete misunderstanding. No, he has to be a little shit to them, as you said.
1: Savior of humanity, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and savior of humanity.
0: This whole scene with the hospital escape is again, so expertly crafted by Cameron. It just keeps topping itself. That's sort of the way I want to explain every action set piece is he just, it doesn't come all at once. It's like a big, it's like a slow sort of wave going up. Everything just sort of gets a little bit more intense and I still cringe at that whole scene where she's got the Drano in the syringe in Soberman's neck. Like that part, I still have problems watching.
1: Yeah, no, it's because it's like, I get it. You know, Sarah's probably not actually planning on killing him or anything, but it's like, dude, what if you trip yeah. <laughs> like, like that? And, and as far as bad ways to go, uh, Drano in your carotid artery, I think would be about as awful as you could possibly get.
0: Absolutely. So by that that whole scene though, it's just, we get Sarah, she's, she's, by the way, she's planning on getting out. She's figured out a way to get out. Like she's got this all planned out in her mind. She does not know that there's, you know, her son and a Terminator are going to be there to assist her. Like she's figured out and formulated this whole plan, which just goes back to like just how, how tactful she's become, how resourceful she's become.
1: They do a nice job too. Cameron does a, a bit of a nice job of setting up the guards that she actually, like the one that she just straight up knocks out. You know, he... Cameron made him kind of a little creepy fellow, so we don't feel that bad that she's clocking him, right? There's there's a little bit of a sense that he's maybe not the most up and up, uh, orderly. So when she when she clocks him, it's kind of like okay, I don't feel bad. Like he does a very good job of setting up how tough Sarah is, while still allowing her to remain sympathetic. Uh, because if she's just going through jacking up innocent people in this hospital, that's going to lose some sympathy for us she, she, you know, Hurts the ones that, that were okay being hurt.
0: Yeah. When she finally gets through like the last set of doors and the bars and she breaks the key off and she's running towards the elevator. I think this scene is incredible because elevator opens, Terminator walks out. Instinctively, she just turns around and runs right back towards the people that are chasing her. And I just thought that should speak to the level of fear that she must be feeling at that moment that this escape that she's been planning, she doesn't even give a shit about it anymore. She just wants to get away from this Terminator. It's incredible.
1: Well, and, and the look, the way Hamilton plays that scene, it, it, it's like instant PTSD, right? She's in control and she's tough and she comes around that corner and sees the Terminator and she's right back to the girl in technoir you know, um, and, and, and her whole face, her whole demeanor just changes completely. It's, it's again, a just masterful piece of visual storytelling. I, I, I think it's it's tremendous.
0: Because, and I had to remind myself that, oh, whoa, 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 he's a good guy. He's a good guy, but she doesn't know that. Her only experience with a Terminator has was, you know, what she went through in the first film. And this Terminator killed Kyle. You know, it's like the love of her life. So I mean, PTSD is probably the best way to describe it. I think that was great. But she runs back towards the people that are chasing her and they subdue her. Arnold steps in, dispatches these people rather quickly which is a just incredible, again, an incredible scene. All the while, Dr. Soberman's just sort of standing up against the wall, watching this all go down. And then you see the T-1000 come walk through the bars. And I've always wondered what his reaction would be. And we'll talk about, you know, comments he makes in the third Terminator film. Uh, and then we just get another great little set piece where they're escaping the hospital. T-1000. We get,
1: we get come with me if you want to live a- Absolutely,
0: Absolutely. Yeah, incredible. They escape the hospital. They get out of the parking garage. There's that great scene where the T-1000 jumps on the back of the police car and he's got the hooks for arms. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Simpsons episode where they parody that with Homer chasing Ned Flanders with the golf clubs. Like that's been that's an iconic scene that's been lampooned a few times.
1: Yeah, it's pretty terrific.
0: So, and this is where watching the film, so they 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 escape, they hold up in a a gas station service garage for the night and this is where the movie sort of, we're right into the middle of the second act and and things really calm down for a while in this film. Like it's a good 45 minutes before we get into another action set piece. One thing I want to point out is watching the director's cut and you've seen the director's cut I assume. I have. So, in the director's cut, there's the scene where the Terminator basically says, There's a switch on my CPU that you need to turn on, and it will make me like basically more advanced learning. This is not in the theatrical cut of the film, where they remove the chip and Sarah almost destroys it with the mallet.
1: No, it's not. Um, And I actually think the theatrical cut works a little better because he he says, you know, in the theatrical cut, he just says that my CPU is a learning learning computer, basically, and. That would only make sense, right? If you want them to be uh, infiltrators, you would want them to be able to do that uh, and learn and adapt. But either way, I think it, whichever version you prefer, it does a nice job of again establishing why we're going to get a more Arnie-like Terminator. You know, because by the end of this, he's not. By the end of this movie, he's not a Terminator. He's John Matrix. You know, <laughs> he is a a lovable action hero uh, it, it, by the end of this movie. And it, 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 again, hand waves. Cameron's so good in both the original and this one at hand-waving the shit that doesn't really matter uh, and not getting so bogged down in the details. And, and I said it in the last episode, and I'll reiterate it. You know, as we get To some of the later movies, they're so obsessed with the details, and that's what keeps them from really working, and Cameron didn't give a shit about the details. He cared about the characters and the story that he was trying to tell, and basically gave us just enough detail that we could go, meh, all right, that seems reasonable, we'll move on, you know?
0: After they leave the mechanic shop gas station, they're driving, and this is where Sarah- gets into the conversation with the Terminator about how did the war start. And the Terminator says, I've got detailed files. And he basically gives really chilling exposition about how the war started. Basically, says that Skynet basically starts to run the military and it becomes self-aware in a panic. They tried to pull the plug and that's when it did It's when it determined that, you know, it needs to get rid of the human race, basically. And it's just, it's very chilling. Even today, I found it really chilling just to hear him tell that story so matter-of-factly.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's basically and I'm only saying this because the comics existed long before the Terminator, it's basically Ultron, right? Yeah. Like People have seen Age of Ultron, but like Ultron in the comics, originally that was the determination that he made was that when he was created, he determined that humanity was the greatest threat to Earth, essentially. And and Skynet made kind of the same determination. There's that, I don't even remember the story. I don't remember if it was Harlan Ellison or who wrote it. I, I should have looked it up, but I'm just, people listening will know the story about a group of scientists that build a supercomputer solely to ask it a question and and the question they ask it is is there a god and and when they turn it on and ask it if there's a god the computer responds there is now you know and that's basically it's a classic sci-fi story classic sci-fi parallel or parable and that's you know that's basically what skynet is like uh skynet basically says well there is a god now and decides that you know, the world is better off without humans.
0: We get them going uh, They They haven't crossed the border yet, but they go to sort of this middle of nowhere, little compound where we're introduced to Enrique, who is clearly someone that Sarahs knows very well. They have got, you know, a lot of friendly banter back and forth. This is where Sarah's got a lot of weapons stashed and their plan is to... I think, just escape and just hide out until the war starts. I think that's initially what the plan is, because she makes a comment that she's going to wait until Dark to cross the border. So she's trying to get away from all of this.
1: I think so, but we also have the... I I don't know, because she's trying to leave John and the Terminator behind, because I think at this point, she's already got the plan that she's going to go try and kill Dyson. Because when the Terminator's telling the story, he tells her point blank that Miles Dyson creates uh, the chip that will lead to the development of Skynet. So Sarah's figuring out if she can kill Dyson, she can stop judgment day.
0: It's kinda like that old, you know, if you could go back and assassinate Hitler, would you type situ scenarios. Right. That I've seen. Exactly I remember that was in the movie The Dead Zone, where Walken asks his doctor, if you could go back and assassinate Hitler based on everything you know, would you do it? And the doctor's like, well, yeah, even though I'm a man of science, yes, I would. This is where Sarah has the vision, has the dream of the nuclear attack on Los Angeles and still fucking incredible. Just the way that Mm -hmm. whole scene is shot. Absolutely incredible. And I thought for me, I thought that was the moment when she wakes up from the dream. I felt like that was the moment that she decided, no, I'm going to do something about this.
1: You know, you could be right. That probably makes more sense because the dream doesn't really, why do we have the dream if that's not, you know, and she's carved no fate into the table. Yeah, I I think you're, I think you're right. I think that's, that's probably the right interpretation of it.
0: And so she leaves there, they, you know, she gets a step on them. She leaves, she makes it to Dyson's house. Beautiful home, by the way.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. very nice. He's
0: doing very well for himself at uh, at Cyberdyne. Very well for himself. Great scene. I mean I mean I mean I know everybody's seen it so I don't think we need to talk about it point by point but just incredible you know he's sitting at his computer you see the laser the laser dot on the back of his head and the first time you're watching you think okay well this is it for him and it's just one of those moments where you know Danny the little child's got the remote control car and it just hits him in the head and he just he goes down and goes down to pick it up and you just see this, his computer monitor just explode and it's just, it's an incredible scene. She just unloads a couple clips into that room.
1: And what really, I think, sells it for me and this is, again, the fallout from that, right? The action scene's well put together, but what really makes it is, and, and Sarah doesn't, she doesn't, she comes to the realization before John even gets there, yeah. right? Uh, of what she's about to do and how far she's gone and kind of the idea of, we can't beat the machines if we play Play the machines game yeah right like like she's a terminator essentially at this point she is literally the very thing that she has been fighting her whole adult life and again credit to linda linda hamilton she just kills this scene she just nails all those conflicting emotions and 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 everything that that she's going through at that time
0: i gotta tell you something man i just got chills because I've never thought, the the way you just explained that to me, I've never thought about it that way, about the fact that she's become a Terminator. She's going to kill someone to prevent something from happening. I've never, even though it's been right there in my face the whole time, the way you explained it, that is amazing. Well done. Yeah. Yeah, well yeah, done. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm glad sh- I get help. <laughs> I'm sure there's some
0: listeners that are probably having that moment just like me. I'm like, holy shit, that's... Holy shit, that's right. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. So she, she does, she does shoot him, but in the arm or in the shoulder, John shows up. You know, like you said, though, she'd already made that decision. Great scene where they're like, who are you? Like, 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 who are you guys? And John w- pulls out a switchblade and says, show him. And he just cuts, cuts his arm, just rips his arm off. And you just see the, 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 the skeleton hand. And it's just incredible. But that moment of realization when Miles just says, Oh my God. Like, he well, realizes that it. it's incredible.
1: You get the great narration from Sarah where she says, I pulled it up. She says, Dyson listened while the Terminator laid it all down. Skynet, Judgment Day, the history of things to come. It's not every day that you find out you're responsible for three billion deaths. He took it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it's just such a, And this is where we do get the sense. Again, Miles Dyson's not a bad guy. No. It, it, it's the epitome of "I have become death destroyer of worlds." Oppenheimer, he yeah. He thinks he's just creating a, a revolutionary piece of tech. He he has he's not intending to be the man responsible for the destruction of the world. Uh, he has no idea that that's what's going to happen. And and you know we get a nice change because in a lesser movie, I think that the wasn't that was just more interested in action. He would have just stayed. The villain, but he immediately is like, Well, we have to destroy everything. Yeah. You know, we, we can't let this happen.
0: Yeah. Cause he says, there's that great line where he just says, you know, how are we supposed to know? And Sarah just freaks out on him. Like, how are you supposed to know? And she's men like you built the hydrogen bomb. Men like you thought it up. And she starts, starts going a little off the rail. She has no idea what it's like, what, what it's like to create life, you know, to feel it, to growing inside you. Mm-hmm. And John's like, mom, mom, all right. <laughs> just calm down. But no, he does. He goes, yeah, listen, we've got to, he, he comes to the realization where he's like, all my work was based on that ship and Terminator's like, it must be destroyed. And. You know, and then he says, oh, well, that's it. I'm done. I'll quit Cyberdyne tomorrow. And there's no one can follow your work. And that's like, all right, well, they're all in. And I love that. Like you said, Mike, I love that. Like he's, he's a good guy and he becomes, you know, you know, an essential part of this ragtag group that we've got throughout the rest of the movie.
1: Well, and it's it's such great casting because I I want to take a minute to just shout out that, you know, Joe Morton has never given a bad performance never. in his entire career. And he's such an empathetic actor that that you just completely buy uh 100 that he's like oh god i don't want to be uh, this is not going to be my legacy like my legacy is going to be i prevented this from happening i will not be responsible for the death of three billion people um and you buy it completely because it's joe morton he's just inherently got that 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 gravitas uh that that, that is so so important and so likable
0: I love when they go to Cyberdime and they walk in and you just look at, look who's walking in. You know, it's, it's Miles Dyson with the Terminator, Linda Hamilton, and a, and a small child at God knows what time in the morning it is. And the security guy's like, he's like, he's like, hi, uh, Carl, right? Yeah. Friends from out of town just want to show him the lab. And the guy's like, yeah, I think you know the rules on, you know, unauthorized people being in. The- it's just like the security guy's like, yeah, I don't think so. And then just a great scene. I keep saying great scene. Obviously, you can tell I love this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm I'm, I'm, un, I'm unabashed about this film. And the other security guy comes out and he's like, Gibbons, where'd you go, man? Well, you can't leave the desk. And he goes in, he's tied up in the bathroom. And this is again, you know, another setup for a, a, another huge action set piece. And you get up in the lab, John's able to get the, he's able to use his little hacking device to get the key into the safe so they can get everything. Great line when John sees the police out there, and he comes out. He comes back and tells them they're setting up explosives in the entire lab. And he says uh, the police are here. And Linda Hamilton says, "How many?" And John says, uh, "All of them, I think." Mm-hmm. Just, just a great line.
1: Yeah, and Arnold says he'll basically create the distraction. We get, I'll be back um, then, and and he then proceeds to, without killing anybody, shoot the bejesus out of all of the cops.
0: Which again. On a technical level, the way Cameron, you know, blocks and sets up that scene where you just see the gun, you see the barrel of the gun come into frame first and he pushes the desk out and even the... The guy in the helicopter is like, that's a damn minigun. (laughs) And you see the helicopter just pull away. Again, great use of practical effects. Just an incredible use of practical effects. Like right down to the squibs exploding in the grass. Like I just thought the whole scene was just so expertly crafted.
1: It was one that a little bit for me, uh, you know, going back all the way to the first time I watched it, it was one that a little bit to me, again, this is just random. It's the way movies react. We react to movies. Pushed the suspension of disbelief a little bit too much for me the idea that he could blow up all these cars and not actually kill anybody i get it he's a robot he's got targeting but it was one that for me i felt a little bit i don't know the the from an action construction standpoint the scene works like gangbusters from a narrative standpoint it doesn't work as well for me uh, as it does for a lot of other people
0: we get back into the lab they're about to make their they're about to make their escape the swat team breaks in starts just laying down some covering fire, hits Dyson, Dyson's mortally wounded. He makes the decision right then and there that it's, you know, got you guys go. I've got this. I've got the detonator. Just go. And there's a great that great scene where the SWAT guys are coming up and you just just Again, the performance Joe, Mo- Joe Morton gives when he's, you know, just to hear his labored breathing and he just tells the guys, right down to the very end, he's a great guy because he says, I don't know how much longer I can hold this because he wants those cops to get out as well. Like he's a good guy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It sucks. It's sad. We don't want to see Miles die. Like it, uh, I don't know. I don't know that I love that he ends up dying, but I think that might just be because I like Joe Morton so much and I never want to see him die in a movie.
0: Uh, yeah. And then they get out, they make their way out, I'm like I'm gushing over this whole part here, <laughs> where, where, where you know they fired more, they fired tear gas, they've got the Sarah and John are sharing a mask, and Arnold goes out there and it just continues to shoot everybody in the kneecap, which is again <laughs> just becoming his signature move. He won't kill anybody, but he'll definitely wound everybody. Steals the uh, SWAT truck, gets in there, they make their escape. Right about this point, the T1000 shows up. There's a small little flash of him. They cut to a scene of him at Miles Dyson's house where they've got a trash can burning all the files. Cool scene where he's, he's got the police motorcycle and he's going up the stairs with that. I just, I want to point that out. I still think that's mm-hmm. an incredibly cool scene.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: He's on the fourth floor, I assume the third or fourth floor. And he, again, signature moment of the film drives the motorcycle out the window launches himself onto the helicopter, scene from the trailer where he just smashes his helmet into the glass of the helicopter and just sort of morphs into it. And little homage to the original Terminator where he looks at the helicopter pilot and just says, get out which was Mm -hmm. a great scene from the first one.
1: And we get, you know, one of, I think, leads to one of the most amazing stunts in the entire movie, which is the helicopter going through the tunnel, uh, which was actually done all practically, uh, which is just absolutely insane to me.
0: Yeah, and that speaks to the fact that those CGI effects that he used, there's only a few. If you were to combine all of those effect shots, there's not that many, and those took forever. Ever to do. The technology back then is not even a fraction of what it is today. And so, a lot of these things had to be practical. And that helicopter scene where he goes under the underpass, that's incredible. That's still like jaw-dropping to watch because like you said, they really did that. And they probably did it more than once. I can't imagine they did that just with one take.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine they did either.
0: And again, this is great chase scene. This chase scene starts to mirror what let me ask you this: Do you see a lot of parallels from the first Terminator in this film?
1: I see a few. I mean, overall, yes, we get it because we get the kind of the chase where the Terminator's chasing them in a large vehicle. They're in a smaller vehicle. The hero, be it Kyle or the ter- you know or the T eight hundred, is trying to fire back and and take out the Terminator. We end obviously at a factory uh, of some sort. Uh, I, as far as I can tell. The factory makes sparks and uh, and liquid metal. That seems to be yeah. what the, it's a spark factory. But so there's definitely parallels. I mean, Cameron knows what he's doing. He's to court, you know, the it's the George Lucas thing. It's poetry. It rhymes. He yeah. he's he's doing something very similar as far as that goes.
0: And that chase sequence on the highway, when they get into that little Chevy S10 pickup truck, and they're being chased by the liquid nitrogen because it needs to say it on the side of the. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't just have one of those little warnings on the back the whole tanker just says liquid nitrogen I, you watch that for the first time you're like okay well there's something's going to happen with that and i just love that whole chase, whole chase right to the to the i guess it's a foundry or like you said it's a steel mill or something and that look we'll,
1: we'll just call it a spark factory a spark factory
0: spark. yeah and you know the the whole tanker truck flips over the T1000 great scene going through the liquid nitrogen where he just freezes up and you get another very iconic line from the movie. I'll let you do it.
1: Uh, Yeah, you get Arnie saying hasta la vista, baby, which is actually, to me, I know it's iconic. I don't don't mind him saying it because it's a very Schwarzenegger line. But a lot of the problem I have with Edward Furlong's performance is a lot of his dialogue, especially in that kind of stuff sounds like a 40-year-old man trying to write how a 13-year-old <laughs> child talks. And uh, and so, like, the idea that he's like, you say hasta la vista, baby, like, it, it, it pays off because Artie delivers the line great, but it's not it's not one of my favorite parts of it just because I didn't like the setup to it. It's weird to say I can like the payoff without the setup, yeah. but that's true. I like the payoff. I don't like the setup.
0: This, uh, again, the whole scene where the, because they're at the spark factory, as you say, if there's a lot of heat going on in there. And the frozen T-1000, decrystallized and, and shattered into a thousand pieces, starts to slowly melt and come back to pool all together and come back together. Again, great shot. Like the, the effects, on, the effect of that scene right there is just incredible. Like it's, it looks realistic for something that's 30 years old. The the effects in that scene are incredible. Absolutely. Uh, and then we just sort of get this, you know, again, very similar to what was happening at the end of the first Terminator this chase through this factory, Arnold. Let's just say it, he gets fucked up by the T one thousand this time. Like you, you, learn quickly. Like this is the part where you realize because earlier on in the in the movie, you know, he said, "I, I don't, you know, he's, a, I don't think I can beat this guy," you know, mm-hmm. and and, uh, and it's proven that he can't. And you think. There's sort of that gotcha gotcha moment kind of from the first one where you think the Terminator is dead, but he does come back to life. We get to the my favorite scene, the scene that has the most tension during this part is when, you know, Sarah's got the shotgun, her arm, you know, she's been confronted by the T-1000. He puts the rod right through her shoulder. He's twisting it. Oh, it's just so painful to watch. She is made, she is, he is telling her, you know, call out to John and she won't do it. And when she starts shooting the T-1000 with that shotgun and she is racking that shotgun with one hand is absolutely incredible. Knowing I've, I've racked a shotgun before and knowing the the amount of pressure you have to use to do that. It's incredible.
1: No, it's great. And it's the... It's the culmination of everything that the movie has set up that Sarah Connor is, right? She is no longer... This is the same Sarah Connor that we saw at the end of the first movie, right? She is not running from the Terminator. She is staring down and facing the Terminator. She's spent the last six years of her life training for this very day. And, and it's the catharsis is uh, absolutely through the roof in this, in this particular scene. And then you also get great scene of uh, as uh, right after she does that, she runs out of bullets, but then we get the T-800 coming up on the conveyor belt, basically, which again, also just supremely cathartic.
0: And it's that scene when she is shooting him with the shotgun and you realize that if she just had one more round... It would have done the job. And then he comes, like you said, he comes up with the great grenade launcher. And, you know, he goes, T-1000 goes into the molten steel. And it's really cool how it sort of just, you get flashes of every character that the T-1000 has emulated. And then it just melts into nothing. They think that's it. And then this part's always been a little emotional for me, you know, because, you know, nostalgic factor. Arnold explains that there's still one more chip and it's got to be destroyed. He can't self-terminate. He goes down. We get the iconic thumbs up. We get
1: And we get, we get the I know now why you cry, which yeah. is, uh, it's good. It's good. Yeah,
0: definitely good. Definitely good. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking I'm very empathetic to John at that point because that must have been an incredibly emotional moment. And we get the voiceover, you know, the highway, the, the headlights on the, the highway. And you get the voiceover where she basically says, you know, you know, if a terminator for a machine can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. Roll credits. That's Terminator Two.
1: I do want to say I think again, as I've said this when it comes to Schwarzenegger, we don't necessarily give him the credit as an actor that he deserves. I think he's really fantastic in this movie. Uh, the way he, you know, we we skipped over after he shoots the T1000, John helps him up and he says, "I need the vacation," yeah. <laughs> um, you know, which is completely out of character, but it's such a Schwarzenegger line that it did that it works. And like I said, that's where he's he's fully transformed by the end of this movie into John Matrix. And and that's fine. Like that's that's it's delightful. Everybody likes him in Commando. It's that's the 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 jokey but tough Arnold is is the Arnold that everybody loves. So, um yeah, it's 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 a nice ending, I think.
0: So, let's talk a little bit about some of the issues you've had with the movie. You have with the movie. We said we're going to wait sort of to the end. I mentioned the time travel paradox.
1: Yeah, the <sighs> I really, and I've said this before, you know, I don't like time travel movies. I generally only like them if they just hand wave away all the time travel. It has bugged me for years, like we talked about. The T-800 needed to come back in order for Cyberdyne to create Skynet, in which case... If the T-800 never comes back, Cyberdyne never creates Skynet. If we have stopped Judgment Day, then there is no Skynet. So there is therefore no T-800 to ever come back. So therefore, there's no reason for Kyle Reese to come back. So John Connor's never born. It it just uh, drives me nuts. I I am a little better with it now because rewatching the original one, Cameron did a lot of good work. In that one, laying the groundwork for Reese basically saying, I don't know, it's one possible future. And that, to me, kind of helped. Watching these so close together kind of helped me feel a little more okay with the time. I still don't like it. I still don't love it. Um, but it, it, like I said, it did bug me less this go-round than it ever has. I still prefer the... And we'll talk about this in the next episode, the time travel, the sort of fixed point time travel of of the third one. I get why a lot of people don't like it, because the whole point of the Terminator franchise is basically, you know, it's the name of our series, right? No fake, but what we make. And. and Terminator 3 kind of seems to shit on that. We'll obviously talk about that a little more. But, uh, yeah, it still bugs me, but it bugged me less. So, oh. I guess we'll we'll take that as a win. <laughs> okay.
0: I'm going to ask you this question. Mike, would you recommend Terminator 2 Judgment Day?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Regardless of, of my problems with it, you know, and, and like I said, I think I've probably enjoyed it more – watching it for this podcast than i ever have in my life i I still really really don't like edward furlong but it's 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 a classic of action cinema. I mean, I would absolutely recommend it. There's more than enough. What I will say for me is I think the first half is far stronger than the second half. I think as much as I like Joe Morton, once they bring Dyson in, I feel like the movie loses a, a little bit of air, uh, deflates from the movie, uh, and, and we become much more interested in big action stuff. I'm rambling a little bit, but I like the horror movie, aspect of the original one and I think the first half of the movie maintains that for the most part uh, bad to the bone notwithstanding but regardless of that this is if you haven't seen this movie you need to see this movie it's it's actually it's absolutely a recommendation
0: absolutely uh it's a very strong recommendation for me as well again I I do recognize the nostalgia factor but look I watched it again t- this morning And I still, there's still like, I still get very excited, like during a lot of these action set pieces. And I'm also, look for an action film, it has a lot of emotion to it. And the characters have a lot of depth to them. At least the main characters do, in my opinion. And I think it is notwithstanding the time travel paradoxes that you so perfectly laid out. I think it is a fitting conclusion to a story. Now that, is probably going to become a recurring theme for me as far as issues I have with the films that we're going to talk about later on in this series. But I feel like this movie represents, coupled in with the first film, the beginning, middle, and absolute end to the story. So I do recommend this one strongly. It's currently available on the Showtime app and it's available to rent or purchase across all major streaming platforms. But I guarantee you there are some amazing Blu-ray versions of this film with extra features probably out the ass that you should definitely check it out. Check out.
1: And the, the 4k disc that, that, Lionsgate put out last year or a couple years ago is I got mine for like seven bucks on Amazon. Keep keep your eyes open for it and and it looks good. It, it doesn't look like it's a full remaster. They basically used the three D the print the master that they struck uh, for the three D version, but it looks good. One thing I do want to say really quick before we go is yeah. It, For those listening who are wondering, you know, why maybe I don't love this movie as much as everybody else. And you kind of hit my feelings a little bit, Dana, when you said you feel like this is a good conclusion to the story that was started in the first one. I will never not think that the first one is perfect and didn't need a sequel. And and talking to you about this movie has made me really zero in on, I think that is my biggest problem with this one as well as all of them. I don't ever think terminator needed a sequel that being said if terminator was gonna get a sequel this is probably the best sequel we could possibly have hoped for
0: yeah okay fair enough and i've made that argument about the movie jaws never needs a sequel yet they kept they kept putting putting them out if people want to follow you on social media how can they do that
1: I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. I am also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where we do track all the movies we recommend in the 20th Century Movie Club. So follow me on that and you'll see everything else I watch. I've been watching a lot of weird... Strange movies lately, so uh, follow me there to see uh, my recommendations.
0: And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm on Twitter at Dana Buckler. The show is available on Twitter at, at Dana Buckler Show, Instagram at The Dana Buckler Show. My personal Instagram is at The Real Dana Buckler. You can email the show with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. So, Mike, the next one we're going to talk about is Terminator 3. The Rise of the Machines that came out in two thousand and three, and I've got plenty to say about that film.
1: Well, and I think it's going to be interesting because, as you know, I am a big Terminator Three defender, so yes. I, I think it'll be—I uh, think it'll be an interesting discussion. We'll have a lot to talk about on Abso-
0: that one. Absolutely. All right. In the meantime, uh, thank you as always for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: and listeners out there, I hope you're all staying safe and sound. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.